You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, the Irish 14 show that's critical but not cynical. Uh, my name is Kean, and you find me, as usual, recording from the cabin in the woods located somewhere in the southeast of Ireland. This is one of our autumn episodes. Trees are starting to turn as I look out the window of the cabin. I see bright colours. There is more yet to come as I record this. We will shortly be entering a crescendo of yellows, oranges, reds, browns, all that good stuff. But um, as I speak and as I record, that is yet to come. Things are just starting to turn. Now, this is our episode all about Haunted Generation and the work of Bob Fisher. I was extraordinarily lucky and very pleased to get Bob on the show. Um, I had a wonderful chat with him. Um, He's a tremendous person to talk to, really fun, really warm, and has a great love of the weird. Uh, And I think a lot of listeners will know Bob's work from the pages of 14 Times, or indeed from his work on the website Haunted Generation. I'm not going to try and describe what he does. I'm going to leave that to the man himself. Um, my beer, as I record this, sitting in front of me, um, is called Nocturne Export Stout. And this is from Rye River Brewing. Uh, they operate out of County Kildare. And this is a fantastic brew. Um, this is wonderful. I am happier with this than I have been for a, a recommended beer in some time. This is, let's see what it says on the side of the bottle. Our Nocturne Export Stout has an amazing aroma of coffee chocolate and a hint of smoke. The taste is loaded with espresso and dark chocolate flavours from the chocolate malt. It's deliciously chewy. You could while away an hour sipping on one of these tasty export stouts. It's really lovely. So as I sit here with this fine beverage in front of me, the cabin of course, as usual, full of strange things, um, blurry photographs of flying saucers and and Bigfoot type creatures up on the walls, stacks of books all around me. And on this occasion, I'm also perusing the record collection of The Cabin in the Woods, something I don't talk about too often. I do sometimes mention various producers of weird ambient music who uh, kind of traipse into the paranormal realm and cross over into the work that I talk about here. And so I'm going through some of my LPs here and uh, to see if there's some stuff that I can line up to play or talk about with um, Mr. Fisher. Uh, because a lot of his work, especially for 14 Times, um, deals with that sort of material. Anyway, as always, you can get in touch with me over on Twitter, where I am at Strange Ireland, or on Instagram, where I am Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. And as it is autumn and I'm traipsing around looking for fungi quite a lot of this time of year, you'll see all of my fungus-related pictures up on that. And most of my most of my nature stuff as well. I had a great sighting of a of a um a stag, a red stag recently, while on a Wicklow trip. So so you can see all that stuff over on Instagram. And I am uh, pretty mild and well behaved on both. I tend not to get into anything too heavy just kind of sharing stuff that friends of the show do incidentally i have a lot a lot of good recommendations to make at the end of this episode so stick around after the interview and if you'd like to help the show folks you can as always over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic and so as i dip back into the record collection here i'll leave you in the capable hands of mr bob fisher let's do it We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Uh, 
thank you very much for having me. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm Bob Fisher, as you have sagely pointed out already. <laughs> and I'm a writer, uh, sometime radio broadcaster and sometime stage performer as well. Um, but I guess I guess the, the reason that you've asked me to do this is because of the Haunted Generation stuff, which is something that's fascinated me for a little while now. I mean, it all, it all began really as a feature that I did for the 40 and Times magazine back in 2017. And it was looking at this artistic movement of music and literature and art, all vaguely inspired by the memories of growing up as a child in the 1970s and often quite vague and fuzzy memories and often quite disturbing and unsettling memories. Um, I mean, the, 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 the phrase that I always use to describe it is, uh, is uh, the, the feeling of watching open university modules on BBC Two on a rainy Tuesday afternoon with chicken pox. It's, it's that <laughs> feeling. But, but, and you know, greater writers than me have explored it in far more depth. People like Simon Reynolds and, and Mark Fisher coined the word hauntology to describe this. Well, borrowed the word hauntology from, uh, from the philosopher Jacques Derrida uh, to describe this artistic movement. I, the best part of 20 years ago now. Um, but it's a movement that still continues to flourish and still continues to fascinate. So I've become absolutely entranced by record labels like Ghostbox and Clay Pipe um, and other labels like Castles in Space that certainly touch upon similar feelings. Um, but, but also, um, you know, I could point you in the direction of people like Richard Littler, who runs a, a project called Scarfolk, and that's an artistic project. He's a graphic designer and he spoofs sort of 1970s uh, public information posters and, and government pamphlets. Um, it's it's just a, a perpetually intriguing scene and all inspired by these these vague and nebulous childhood feelings um, and, and uh, the, the music often, and it is largely a music-based phenomenon, I think, and the music often kind of fits in the gaps between our memories of childhood. So there will be spoof TV themes uh, and spoof bits of library music, you know, music that you might have heard when you had chicken pox on a rainy Tuesday afternoon. Um, <laughs> And, and, and you, 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 you listen to this stuff and you think, well, it could have existed in 1974, but it didn't. And I find it just an incredibly evocative and, and affecting uh, movement. And it's one that so I, I started writing about it with a single feature for the 40 and Times in 2017 called The Haunted Generation, which is the only decent title for anything I've ever come up with in my life. Um, and I interviewed people like Jim Jupp from Ghostbox Records, Francis Castle from Clay Pipe Music, uh, Johnny Trunk from Trunk Records, who does a brilliant job at, at reissuing tons of this really strange old stuff, the original source material. Um, Richard Littler, Scarfolk, I interviewed, and uh, Simon Reynolds himself, who was there at the start. I spoke to Simon as well. Um, and, and the reaction that that feature got was just really... I, incredibly humbling and overwhelming. You know, it, it, the, the, the reaction to it rumbled on in the letters page of the 40 and Times for about a year, genuinely <laughs> a year, 
with people saying, my God, yes, I remember those strange feelings. Um, and, uh, and on social media as well, uh, uh, just uh, so many nice messages. And uh, since then, it's just something that I've continued to write about, both for the Fortean Times. I write for Electronic Sound magazine as well. So now I end up reviewing and writing features about lots of this music for them. And it's just become a huge part of my life. And I'm incredibly happy about that. Yeah, that was a wonderful description. I was worried Thank about how you. I was going to explain <laughs> what Haunted Generation is. So I, I told you I'd go on a bit. <laughs> I'm a fan of the of the 14 Times articles and of the of the website. I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners will as well. And though I'm a different generation and a different country, and some of the examples are new to me, and I'm learning about what they meant to people in the UK in those decades, a lot of stuff has crossed over as well. And I know I know that stuff that you, you talk about and review t- tips on things that we were a fan of on this show. It, there's elements of cryptozoology. There's elements of folk horror. There's elements of um, a hauntology, as you say. So it, it, co- it covers a lot of ground that we're I'm fond of on the show as well. Oh, well, that's that's um, that's gratifying to know. I'm kind of fascinated by the fact that, that you say you're a, you're, you're a different generation to me, which is something I hear increasingly often. <laughs> I've reached the age when virtually everybody is a different generation to me. Um, and the fact that, that, that you know, obviously you're in Ireland um, because for years and years, I, I certainly assumed and I think I think, you know, probably a, I wasn't alone in this. I assumed that those feelings of a sort of haunted childhood was something that was very specific to the 1970s and and quite specific. I want to say Britain, but maybe even just England. but I mistakenly thought that, and I'm completely wrong because what the nice thing about writing about all of this stuff so much over the last few years is that it's put me into contact with people who have completely proved me wrong. So, you know, I speak to people like um, Joao from the band Beautified Junkyard, who are a Portuguese band, make beautiful psychedelic albums for Ghostbox Records. Um, all with that sort of haunted 1970s childhood feeling to them, but filtered through the, uh, a Portuguese experience. <laughs> when I, actually, I actually said to Joao, I've spoken to him a couple of times. I remember saying to him, you know, what, what, what was the childhood experience like in Portugal in the 1970s? I find it really intriguing that you seem to completely get that unsettlement, that disquiet of the British 1970s childhood. And he paused for a second and he, he said, well, yeah, yeah, we did have a, like a military revolution in 1974. <laughs> which I, I, right, yes. In terms of childhood disquiet and unsettlement, that's that's not bad really, is it? Uh, the curious thing about that revolution, I believe, is that it was actually sparked by the playing of the Portuguese Eurovision entry on the uh, <laughs> on national radio. That was that was the sign to take to the streets. I think we've put out a few songs for Eurovision that ought to have sparked uh, a riot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, come on, where was, where's, go, go on, follow that, Johnny Logan. Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I put that to Joao and he said, yeah, what can I say? Where are crazy people? Um, So it was interesting speaking to him and it was interesting speaking to, you know, someone like Sebastian Counts, um, uh, who makes music as Toy Toy Toy, uh, again for Ghostbox. And he's German, so he's got, um, you know, memories of his 1970s German childhood. And, And his philosophy 
behind his music is that he wants to explore elements of of ancient German folklore. And, and when you get into the realms of German folklore, you can enter very dark territory indeed, because as <laughs> he himself says, you know, lots of it was hijacked by by the Nazis during during the 1930s. And, and German folklore was used as an example of German purity. OK, you know, this is our inheritance. <laughs> And, yeah. you know, and Sebastian wants to claim that back, you know, just, yeah. no, this, this, our, our folklore does not belong to the Nazis. It belongs it belongs to, to us now. Um, so I found that really fascinating. Um, and again, I, I've spoken to, to people you know, much younger than me because I guess you think, oh, it's a, it's a 1970s thing. It's about Bagpuss and it's about public information films and Wurzel Gummidge. Um, but I've spoken to people much younger than me who say, no, they get exactly the same feelings. That sort of vaguely fuzzy half memory of childhood disquiet of not not unpleasant, you know, nothing, nothing overtly traumatic in most cases. Just a feeling of slight wrongness. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I've, I've had people in their, you know, in their 20s and 30s. I'm, I'm, I'm 50 in a few weeks, so I'm kind of streets ahead of that. But I've had people in their 20s and 30s say to me that they get the same feelings from the stuff of their childhood. And it's really interesting as to what that stuff actually is. Somebody told me it was the Windows 2000 startup music. <laughs> <laughs> that gave them like this but then again you think well absolutely why wouldn't it be because i get these feelings from you know this the sound of like an an old rented television starting up and fizzing and fuzzing um so you know for me for me it's the sound of of old technology of, of obsolete formats that can bring about these feelings so you know if you were five in 2000 why wouldn't it be the windows yeah. startup music or the sound of a dial-up modem so it's fascinating how uh, these feelings seem to be i think i think there is a nexus point of the 1970s i think that is for all sorts of reasons i think that's where it all kind of coalesces but it's by no means limited to that era or, or, or to Britain in the 1970s. It seems to be a much more universal feeling than that. I definitely feel the the British iteration of it is having a bit of a moment. There's just a lot of creative work, I think, going on around that kind of vibe and feeling. And um, I, I think some of it is tied to the paranormal stuff, which was big in the 70s. And, and I think that media had a particular vibe and a particular tint to it, which even people who don't remember it are, are, are find kind of attractive now. You know? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, so, so I've spoken to, to much younger people, uh, you know, people that were kids in the 1990s who say, yeah, they absolutely understand why you would watch something like, I mean, I get the prime example of that is Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. Yes, yes. Which, you know, okay. I, I defy anybody to watch Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, you know, whether you were alive in 1980 or not, and not get a certain frisson of weirdness from it. It's a <laughs> deeply strange programme. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think, I think lots of people are taking inspiration from, from that kind of, it's, I think the 1970s uh, and early 80s possibly is really interesting in its treatment of the paranormal. Because you might be able to, well, you can tell me whether this was the same for you growing up in Ireland in the, I guess, are you a kid in the 1990s? I'm guessing, if we got that right. Um, but, good but, guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So I'd be intrigued to know whether it's the same experience for you. Uh, certainly as a, as, as, a, as a British kid in the 70s, my memory of the paranormal is that it was treated pretty damn seriously by the mainstream media. So something yeah. like Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, you know, it wasn't marginalised. I mean, now it would probably just be a YouTube channel or, or it would be on one of those TV channels that you have to flick through like 150 other channels to get to. It would be on at three o'clock in the morning. Um, but Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World was on, it was on ITV. It was on primetime ITV on a Tuesday night or something at 7.30pm. I was six years old and I watched it because it was just on in the front room and my parents had it on. But there's nothing, I don't know, I get with with possibly with the benefit of a tiny bit of adult cynicism, I can watch Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World now and see that it was maybe a little bit tongue in cheek. But <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 not, and not least because Arthur C. Clarke himself at the end of every single episode says, no, I don't believe a word of this. <laughs> Which kind of undermines things slightly. But that didn't matter to me as a six year old. I was already traumatized by the rest of the program. Um, so I, I, I can kind of see that. But it was an era when you would get, you know, you get news reports the the mainstream news, the, just your, your evening news on BBC One or, or ITV would include a story about a UFO sighting or the Loch Ness Monster or a poltergeist in between stories about, you know, industrial action or the latest political upheaval in whatever far flung part of the world. Um, and it wasn't treated at all like it was the funny story at the end of the news. You know, it, it, it would be presented as a news story. So I think that gives the era like a certain frisson as well. You know, it's, it's, it's when, you, when you're growing up, when you're six years old and you're, and you're watching BBC One and the main BBC One news is basically saying poltergeists are real. I defy anybody <laughs> not to have a few sleepless nights over that. Was that, was that the same? Did you get the same experience? We got some of those things. It was, fizzled it was, away by then. I, I will someday do a version, an episode on, on the Irish iteration of this, and I'm, I'm thinking about some folks who might be able to help me on that one. But <clears throat> like some of this stuff we got, we did get Arthur C. Clarke's. I, I remember seeing that very occasionally. You had to be at someone's house who had the, the UK channels, which was comparatively rare. Yeah. Um, but I do remember that vibe you're talking about, that like it was presented very seriously and without the context of, of being a grown up, you take it as seriously as some other news program that you might see. And I do I do remember. I, and you made you right at one point on, on the website that maybe the turning point for this is people who remember the pre-digital because they can't go back and capture their memories, you know, like stuff that can't easily be found on YouTube anymore. So you're, yeah. you're going way back, really. And so. Once we now, now that we have the ability to go back and find these things, I can revisit sightings from the 90s or I can revisit Arthur C. Clarke from the early 80s and, and see. But there's stuff out there that's been lost and, and we're reinventing them where where we can't find them, as you say. <laughs> that's that's a, a big part of of the whole artistic scene that I write about, I think, is the idea that there are. I can't remember who said it was. Well, it was one of the people I spoke to for that original Haunted Generation article think it was I think it was Richard Littler but it might have been Jim Jump from Ghostbox Records oh you've read it more recently than I have but <laughs> um, basically saying we've got gaps in our memories we have huge gaps in our memories that we can't possibly fill 
because we just don't know what they were. So like you say, I've, I think nostalgia for of my generation certainly is probably a different kind of nostalgia uh, than to the nostalgia that young people today would experience purely because I there are huge tracts of my childhood that I cannot reaccess. Um, you know, I don't have I don't have that many photographs of my childhood purely because it was an era when people didn't take that many photographs. You know, the, the camera came out on uh, for family holidays and for days out and trips to the seaside, but it, it didn't come out on. You know, I've got no pictures of the interior of my house in the 1970s. Uh, I wish I had, but there was just no reason to take them. Um, and ditto with the stuff that I watched on TV, you know, t tons of the stuff that I watched on TV and, and that really profoundly affected me. I don't know what it was. I, I can't tell you at all what it was. I have no way of checking. I don't know when I watched it. I, I, I don't ne There's never been any easy way of re-watching it, you know, at the time. But I'm just, so, you know, when you, you you watch TV and stuff was on once and as far as you knew, you probably never see it again. So I think we do have those complete gaps in our memories. Um, and, yeah, the, 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 the music and the art that I love often kind of I think I, either Jim or Richard, one or the other, said what we what we do is we fill those gaps with strange fiction. And that's a huge part of the appeal of all this. And I cannot remember for the life of me what was the actual question you asked me now. I've <laughs> on so much. <laughs> well, what was it? Can't remember either. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I, I have a list There's here. Uh, we might talk about sources, so stuff that you've covered on the on the blog yeah. that I enjoy particularly and some of this stuff we did have, I, I had access to growing up, so it kind of struck me. So we had um, a library with sort of books that were, you know, in vogue 10 years earlier or <laughs> five years earlier. And so some of the names of the authors that you you cover on Musty Books, which <laughs> amazing, have to talk about that. <laughs> so like I read Alan Garner or, or, and I, I went over my head, I was too little and I knew, I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't have the context for the kind of all the class thing that was going on and the, the language differences in, in the Welsh setting. But I knew something strange and weird was going on. And I we used to read Robert Swindles. We had a lot of Robert Swindles books. And Nicholas Fisk, I really liked as well. And they're all very strange authors who wrote books for children that um, were all had a little something unsettling in them, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Alan Garner is, is my hero. Alan Garner is, you know, I was, I was introduced to Alan Garner by my teacher, Mr. Millward, uh, at school in 1983. He sat my class down and he read Alan Garner's novel, The Weird Stone of Brisingerman, to us. And he did all the voices. And it was genuinely a life changing moment. And in recent years, I've spoken to Mr. Millward himself. He's still out there and he's charming. And I've told him what a huge effect that had on me because I immediately went out the next weekend and I bought my own copy of The Weird Stone of Brisingerman and I read it and I absolutely lived and breathed it. And, I, you know, a couple of weeks later, I bought the sequel, The Moon of Gomrath, and then I bought Elidor and then I bought The Owl Service, you know, the one that you mentioned. Set yeah, in the, yeah, that's the one. Three young people in a Welsh valley who find themselves kind of, re <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Oh, I, tell you, I told you I had a cold and I'll cough a bit. Um, yeah, three young people in a Welsh valley that find themselves reenacting this ancient Welsh myth. 
um, it's got a doomed love triangle. It's beautiful, brilliant book, but very complex book. And I, I was the same as you. I I read it at the age of about twelve. Uh, that I I I still find new bits of the Owl Service when I read it now. You know, I, I still kind of pick bits out and go, oh, that right, so that's what that. <laughs> and that's the that's the beauty of Alan Garner's books for me. They don't give up their secrets easily. Um, they, they require a, a, a bit of input on your part. So yeah, Garner completely. Um, Nicholas and that Fisk's... book is really that book is really steeped in a lot of stuff we've talked about recently on the show about the whole you know Victorian and Edwardian obsession with you know pagan survivals and that that mm. kind of this, the, the roots of what people are now making folk horror from. It's it's almost like an earlier iteration of that. So. Yeah, it's very much about. I mean, the owl service in particular. Yeah, definitely is very much. Um, it's about how folklore and folk story infuses place. So this ancient story, you know, these these three ancient characters from from Welsh folklore, um, their 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 doomed story becomes reenacted by three teenagers in late 1960s Wales. Um, in the same valley, and, and you know, we are, how am I giving spoilers away here? We, ba- <laughs> we basically learn that the valley itself is almost sentient, and 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 try, tries to tries to trap people within it by making them replay this this ancient folk myth over and over and over again. Um, yeah, no, and and that's a recurring theme through all in Garner's books is is. You know, to coin a phrase, what lies beneath the story that's beneath <laughs> the landscape, and how that some sometimes somehow seeps out and and affects affects people in the current day. I mean, one of my other favourite Alan Garner books is Redshift, that's mm. set in the same you know the same place. I mean, all of apart from the Owl Service, much all of his writing is set around Cheshire, um, but Redshift is is set in the same place but in three different time zones you know during the the roman occupation of britain uh during the uh the english civil war uh and then during the 1970s and it's it's how these these three time zones in the same place are kind of linked by that absolutely intense emotion it's uh yeah no all of that is is what i love about alan garner's work and and particularly the I know it sounds terribly pretentious when I say it, but the connection to place, the connection between story and place is one that has always resonated with me. Um, I think maybe because of the, 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 the kind of place that I grew up, you know, I, I grew up on the on the fringes of the North York Moors and, and, I, and I still live on the fringes of the North York Moors. So when I read Alan Garner's books as a kid, the action that took place in these strange corners of rural Cheshire I kind of transferred in my head to the North York Moors. So when I read the books, I saw the action taking place on the North York Moors. Um, and I still, there are certain scenes, you know, there's a, there's a, a scene in, in the Moon of Gomrath uh, where Colin, who's the, 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 the young hero of the book, um, has to run across an ancient trackway, uh, the old straight track on, on top of, you know, a Cheshire hillside. Uh, to find a mythical flower to to heal his sister. Um, now, in my head, I can tell you exactly where that occurs, and it occurs on a stretch of the North York Moors near Stokesley. <laughs> but obviously, <laughs> in the book, it doesn't at all. So I, I, I think even even without knowing the places themselves, without ever having been to Cheshire, 
the fact that they were set in such a recognisable place and the fact that Alan Garner made those places so vivid uh, really, really got to me as a kid. It really affected me as a kid. And it was really funny because it's only within the last five years or so um, that I've actually been to Cheshire a few times and I've been to Alderley Edge where the, you know, those books are set. Um, and I've, 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 I've been incredibly lucky to spend a little bit of time with Alan Garner himself. Oh, wow. It's, it's really funny to kind of, you know, the first time I went to Alderley Edge and looked at, you know, the place where the old straight track should be in the books. It's like, oh, that's really weird because it doesn't look like it at all. That's not how it's been in my head for the last 35 years. Um, so, yeah, no, no, he's, he is my hero. Um, who else did you mention? Nicholas Fisk. Nicholas yeah, Fisk. Nicholas Fisk. I felt like I was the only person in the world who who knew who Nicholas Fisk was because we had a bunch of bunch of books in our local library, and I never saw I never saw them anywhere else. I never heard anybody mention them, and they were deeply deeply just all slightly odd. Yeah, they are. The one that all I did on the odd. website was um, uh, Grinny, but uh, about it was a kind of grey ant that comes to stay with a. a, a well, they're an odd family in Grinny because on the face of it, they appear to be a very ordinary 1970s British family. But then they've got their own swimming pool, which struck me as... Yeah, it's secretly written by an American who did, didn't do I any homework. I don't know. He's not, he wasn't American, was he, Nicholas Fisk? Oh, no, no, he wasn't. No. I'm, only, I'm only wondering where he got this idea from. Yeah, I, 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 well, I didn't know of any families in, in the 1970s who had their own swimming pool. But yeah, it's... It's about um, it's like a great aunt that comes to visit, isn't it? And it transpires that she's an alien. Um, yeah, there's a. I, mean, I think I, it was weird when I when I when I I, re, I wrote about Grinny for the website. Um, and lots of people got in touch and said, "Oh my God, I was so traumatized by that book when I was a child. Is it still <laughs> terrifying?" I was like, "No, it's really not." It's actually quite funny, and it's done with a, an incredibly light touch. Um, but yeah, no, the, uh, the, what the book of Nicholas Fisk's that I really like is um, called Trillions, where yes. uh, lots of small crystal, like million, well, trillions, obviously, of small crystals appear, like and I, like virtually overnight, scattered around the country. Uh, that's a really good book. Uh, um, who else? Oh, Robert. Did you mention Robert Swindell as well? Yeah, Swindells. Yeah, I had a book where some little kid in like rural England discovers that a scientist in their village is actually growing like aliens from Jupiter. These like jellyfish <laughs> aliens inside in a vat in a barn, and every um every every chapter had a drawing, and it showed like a polyp, you know, like a like the yeah. juvenile form of. Of a of a jellyfish slowly transforming into a this vicious creature with teeth. <laughs> I haven't read that. Which which book was that? Can you remember? I, 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 I've never. I haven't successfully tracked it down yet. But, um, <laughs> it can't be too difficult to track down. That's a pretty that's a pretty niche premise, I would say. Um, the one I read is um, oh, Brother in the Land. Which, oh, I haven't read that. Have I got, I'm going to double edit this bit out here because I'm going to double check. <laughs> I've got that. That is Robert Swindells, isn't it? You have me doubting myself for a second because <laughs> the style of the one you described was so different to Brother in the Land. I thought, have I got it right? Is it the same writer? Yeah, Robert Swindells, Brother in the Land. 
which is by far, and, and God, there's some stiff competition here, uh, but it's by far the bleakest children's book I've ever read in my life. <laughs> this it's, is the theme. This is the theme of the of the website is these really, yeah, but they're all, there's always like a plague that kills off everybody except a small band of children. Well, know. here we got right, I'll give you, so this is, this is the blurb on the back of Brother in the Land. Danny is one of the unlucky ones, a survivor, oh, one no. of those who've come through a nuclear holocaust no. alive. In Shipley, an ordinary town in the north of England, there are still some people living. In plain language, Danny sets down the sights and events around him, what he sees, what he hears and what he feels. Defending the stock of food in the cellar of his dad's shop, the black rain fetching contaminated water from the well, the spacers, the badgers, the terminals, everything. It isn't a pleasant story. Danny records what happened to the people of Shipley and in particular to himself, a girl called Kim, and his little brother Ben, who was only seven years old when the bombs dropped. Oh, it sounds like threads. <laughs> it is very like threads. Oh, God. I think it came out in the same year. Is it 84? 84 of threads, yeah. But, yeah, is this... Uh... It was first published 1984. Yeah. So, uh, well, I was going to say that there was something in the air in 1984. There was. I was there. There was an absolutely appalling, all pervading fear of nuclear apocalypse. That's what was in the air. Wow. And you also have books about like alien big cats that were written for kids in the 70s. You have books about UFOs, flying saucers and very specific 70s British style flying saucers as well so all, all of that <laughs> through the medium of you know children's stories yeah absolutely i i just think it was an era when uh, like we've said the, the the paranormal was was treated more as part of the mainstream media i think than it is now um and i think also there was less of a you know there was just less of a filter when it came to the kind of material you would present to children so would a book like brother in the land you know be written and kept in school libraries in 2022 i'm not sure i'm not no, sure i haven't been would. in a school library for a while no me neither <laughs> um, but i just I, I i think there was probably I don't know. I mean, the danger with all of this stuff isn't it is that is that you end up kind of getting a bit oh in my day and yeah. kids today, oh, yeah. they're all soft. <laughs> no, they're not at all. Kids today are just as resilient and brilliant yeah. and, and creative so. and wonderful as they've ever, they ever been. Um, but you do kind of, obviously, attitudes change, and quite rightly in lots of cases, and, and social mores change, and again, quite rightly in lots of cases. And Certainly, I think a lot of the stuff that was presented to us as children in the 1970s and 80s would not be presented to modern day kids, and in some cases with very good reason. Um, but I'm kind of, I don't know, I, I think we're, we're all a product of, of, of our times and of, of where we grew up, of when we grew up, and, and I'm kind of... Although a lot of this stuff affected me deeply and profoundly and scared me and unsettled me, it all kind of contributed to making me what I am today. So for that reason, you know, I, I, in, so, in, in some senses, I wouldn't be without it. I think kids will always gravitate towards like something that's grotesque, something that's forbidden, something that's yeah. a little bit not you're not supposed to be investigating. I 
I, I want to mention some of the to give people a flavor then of the the 14 times column where you focus on the audio the audio flavor of this and and contemporary um artists who are trying to summon up the, the feelings that we get talking about these yeah. old weird books and uh, some of the artists that you've covered and i've mentioned before on the show because what they do kind of strays into my territory a bit. I'm, I'm a fan of Grey Frequency and and the Night Monitor, and but they they do a lot of this very 70s paranormal stuff, both of them. Yeah, Night Monitor in particular. Um, this guy called Neil Scriven, mm. who's um, yeah, he's just kind of fascinated by like, that sort of that sort of Arthur C. Clarke school of paranormal stuff, isn't he? Um, I'm trying to think. I think the first thing he ever sent to me was an album called This House is Haunted. Yes. That was very much inspired by, again, we were talking about poltergeists being seen as um, sort of you know, mainstream news items, uh, very much inspired by the Enfield poltergeist case. Um, and yeah, he's done UFO themed albums, hasn't he? Um, mm, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, Welsh Triangle, I think. That's yes. I, I was trying to think of the title. Yes, the Welsh Triangle. <laughs> That's an amazing one of, album. One of, one of one of two albums that I sent about the Welsh Triangle in the same month. Yes, they were completely unaware of each other because there's a guy <laughs> called Gavin who records a spurious transients. Yes. Uh, who also made a concept album about the Welsh Triangle of UFO sightings in the 1970s. <laughs> uh, and they, were t- they, they came out within about a fortnight of each other, and they were both completely <laughs> unaware of the other one. Because um, Gavin, Spurious Transients, I think his sister um, had been involved in one of the sightings, and uh, uh, sorry to say she, she died as he was making the album, but he managed to get her... Her memories of of the Welsh Triangle UFO sightings recorded and included on the album. So that's a really kind of touching part of that. So um, yeah, definitely, there's a strong element of. Um, I, I guess with it being the 40 and times, um, you know, it's a magazine with a leaning towards the supernatural anyway. So the music that I that I write about for the 40 and times. I, I do I do look for stuff with a you know a very forty and times friendly feel to it. <laughs> if you know if you've got an album that has the feel of something vaguely unsettling from the nineteen seventies, that's great. And there's every chance I'll put it in the forty times. If you've got an album that conjures up the vaguely unfeeling, unsettling feeling of the nineteen seventies and references poltergeists or UFOs, <laughs> it's virtually a shoe in to get in there. So. Um, Oh, I reviewed an album by, um, and again, this kind of ties into looking beyond the British experience. There's an American uh, musician called Momby Yulman, um, who did a a terrific album called Beyond, oh, Bridgewater. I was going to say, is it Bridgewater? Yeah, the Bridgewater Triangle is Bridgewater, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Supposed supposed window area in, uh, I think, the east part of the U.S., Yes, where Pukwudgies live, <laughs> strange swamp creatures. Uh, so he made a terrific album. And again, that was that was his equivalent of Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious <laughs> World on TV when he was a kid, <laughs> stories of Pukwudgies. Um, so, yeah, he made an album inspired by that, and that's a brilliant album. So, yeah, anything like that is guaranteed to get my attention, really. Lovely. Um, I also want to go back to the website for a moment. Uh, mm. I want to talk about, uh, you have a... a ongoing series called felt trips which, <laughs> uh, which and not just because to. 
not just because I've been in it recently, which is yes. very, very nicely appreciated. Um, this is people's memories of uh, Choose Your Own Path books, and in particular, very often the fighting fantasy books, which I have talked about before on the show yeah. uh, and you've written about recently as well. And you had uh, a, a, an important meeting with somebody from the history of this this series as well. So um, first of all, we should probably explain this to folks from abroad, just in case mm. anyone isn't familiar with the series. Well, the Fighting Fantasy series were essentially, they were game books um, produced by, uh, initiated by two writers, Ian Livingstone and Steve Jackson. Um, and they, I mean, it was an attempt to turn traditional Dungeons and Dragons role-playing games into a, into a book format that essentially you could play by yourself. So I was, I also somewhat pithily described them myself as they were they were Dungeons and Dragons for people that didn't have any friends. Yes. So you, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being self-deprecating here because I was in, that was entirely how I got into them. I didn't really know that many people that I could have played Dungeons and Dragons with. Certainly not at the age of eleven, but I did discover the fighting fantasy books. So yeah, they're they're. You, uh, well, to, to, to coin the catchphrase of the books, you are the hero and you set off on usually the swords and sorcery themed missions to, I mean, my, my, my favourite my favorite of the series is the Forest of Doom, which is number three in the Fighting Fantasy Gamebook series. And your mission in that is to enter the foul, pestilent, darkwood forest. <laughs> and retrieve two parts of a warhammer that will aid the dwarves of Stonebridge in their battle against the hill trolls. <laughs> and it's brilliant. And I found them utterly, utterly immersive as a kid. Uh, to the point where, I mean, they I, I wrote about this in the 14 Times. So, so I, I, as, as you suggested, I, I wrote a huge feature about fighting fantasy books for the 14 Times only a couple of months ago, because it's the 40th anniversary of the fighting fantasy books. I managed to get a big interview with um, with Ian Livingstone himself and, and went to his house and he he still got his original handwritten manuscripts in cardboard boxes. <laughs> we brought them all out. We, 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 we carried them out of his study and we sat in his front room leafing through the original manuscripts for the Warlock of Firetop Mountain and the Forest of Doom and City of Thieves. Um, so, but I was telling him how much these books sort of began to infiltrate my everyday existence in a brilliant way. So again, in the same way that I did with Alan Garner's books, you know, when I went to my local woods, I I was not in Kirk Levington Woods, (laughs) you know, a mile from my house. I was in the Forest of Doom. And when when I walked, you know, I walked down a woodland path and if it forked into two, branches oh wow do i go east do i go west i go <laughs> Turn west to page 400 and something can't be 400 because that's the could end. Be an elf <laughs> sitting on a mushroom um and i'm not just like a trucker in a lay-by <laughs> chucking a copy of razzle into the bushes uh, which is more likely what i would find isn't there a, a rock that talks to you at the beginning or a crow on a on a on a sitting on top of a sitting on a signpost, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the boundaries, the boundaries between the, between 
reality and the and the utterly bonkers were very thin for me at the age of 11 and i genuinely remember um and I, I put this in the feature i remember sitting on the swings in my local play park um and, and with a friend with with my best mate doug um and we, we sat on the swings and there was a railway line that went I, so from the swings a, a, a steep bank went upwards with uh, at the top of it was the railway line and as we sat on the swings in my head what appeared to be like a party of dwarves in in the fantastical sense in the tolkien fighting fantasy sense of dwarves like came down from the railway line carrying picks and shovels about 10 of them <laughs> cheerily waved at us before going on their way. And I, I genuinely believed that that had happened, that some kind of portal had opened up in our local play park and, and beings from a fantastical dimension had come through. Now, with the benefit of adult hindsight, what I clearly saw was like a team of workmen from the railway line. <laughs> they probably you know, been employed by British Rail and knocking off at the end of our day. They were clearly just walking down from the railway line and probably going for a pint in the Black Bull in Yarmouth Street. Um, but, in, but I was so infused, was I, with the spirit of the fighting fantasy books that, that all of that stuff just began to bleed through into, into my everyday existence. I, I got the I went to one of the fighting fantasy fests in maybe 2018 or 19 can't remember right. so I saw I saw Ian Livingston speak at that and yeah I got my copy of House of Hell signed by the two fellows <laughs> <laughs> oh he's brilliant they, I mean they both are they're both fantastic yeah they seem um, like real gents yeah oh totally and utterly yeah I went to the fighting fantasy fest um uh, only a couple of weeks ago and yeah they were both there again and it was such a I hadn't been to a convention of anything for a while but they were such brilliant. It was a lovely atmosphere. It was incredibly friendly. Um, and I, the interesting thing was my, my other half came with me, who and she has no interest whatsoever. <laughs> no, that's unfair. That is unfair. I'm, I'm shocked. I'm she shocked. Might, but she no, that that is unfair. But she has no she has no history with the fighting fantasy books, is what I'm saying. Um, she didn't she didn't read them as a kid at all. Um, so she came to this like as a complete newcomer and she was just bowled over by Ian and Steve. I mean, she could, uh, she, uh, bless her, she came and did the photos when I went to Ian's house for the 40th time. So, oh, lovely. They, so they'd met then uh, and she was really bowled over by Ian and his kind of genial approach to life and how friendly he was and how lovely he is. Um, but she came to the convention and was just again just really taken by um, the enth the enthusiasm of like all the participants of the people speaking of Ian and Steve and all the other writers and artists, uh, but also of fighting fantasy fans. And she was really bowled over by how much of our lives had had been infused by this stuff and how much it meant to us. Um, and she was really touched by all of that. There is a there is a lovely. It is a, for such for books that can be incredibly gruesome and gory, <laughs> they seem to have encouraged an absolutely beautifully gentle readership and, um, and fan base. Well, one thing that is clear from the from the blog is that a lot of people were motivated to create their own versions of them 
as children. So I, I've done I've done that, and I believe you have as well. And it's 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 one thing that gets chronicled on the blog, which is very fun to go back and and read people's seven you know eighties and nineties <laughs> home brew versions. Well, you quite clearly need to tell us here about House of Horrors. <laughs> I suppose I br- I'll briefly on. mention <laughs> my own horn briefly that one. So on, on the on the blog uh, under fell trips um, is a copy of a book I made, which was a rip off, <laughs> like a, a very blatant rip off oh, of Steve Jackson's House of Hell called House of Horrors because the haunted house motif. I, I was only partly into the fantasy stuff. I was much more all about the haunted house stuff. And it's 90 percent just a rip, a rip off of that book with a little <laughs> bit of Borley Rectory in there as well. There's yes. like spirit writing on the wall. And uh, I think there's um, a headless coach and tra- horse, horse and cart kind of thing. Um, and I, I went to the trouble of getting my father to type it for me on yeah. whatever Macintosh we would have had in the early 90s. And um, I <laughs> I drew the pictures in proper felt felt tip uh, yeah. tradition uh, on top of the printed pages. And we it got it got um I went to some place to get it bound as well. It looks brilliant. It felt looks like an incredible luxury. Incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it's come, it's finished. Like, unlike surely everybody else's attempt <laughs> ever to write their own fighting fantasy book, it's actually finished. You can play it. I, oh, it was lovely. I put it on the website, and people were people were popping up on Twitter, yeah. weren't they, and say, "Oh, I've I've just played it, and I got killed by the." You know, the yeah. I used to have a system where, because I know there's like, I know from reading, I read, I've been reading blogs about fans of fighting fantasy for years now. And um, a lot of the, a lot of people tell stories about like getting started when they were kids and not having the, the, the actual discipline to finish them. But I used to like put all the numbers down on a page and cross them off once when I had um, implied that it, there was a link to it. And then twice when it was actually written so that I wasn't, <laughs> you know, I wasn't using numbers that were right next to each other. I wasn't. Yeah. Uh, doubling up on numbers, that sort of thing. So oh, you're meticulous. Probably an unusual child. <laughs> <laughs> dedicated. Let's just say dedicated. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, I wrote a fighting fantasy, and, and unlike you, I haven't kept it. And it's it's one of the biggest regrets of my life. <laughs> and God knows there are a few. Um, but yeah, I, I, me and my friend Ian Oswald wrote a fighting fantasy book in 1984 called The Guardian of Goblin Grotto. <laughs> we, were, we were big on alliteration as 11 year olds and I can't remember anything about it at all. Um, I, I, I couldn't remember a single thing. We did finish it. I think it was probably the same as yours. It was probably about 40 paragraphs um, and it was playable. Uh, I couldn't remember a single thing about it, but I'm still in touch with Ian Oswald. Um, and I, I asked him about it reasonably recently and he said, oh, it was full of sort of monstery versions of our school friends <laughs> so yeah you know he said the one he remembered we had uh, we had a friend called frankie paul frank at school and he was immortalized in the guardian of of goblin grotto as the frankie frankie he was a kind <laughs> of he was a, a benevolent frankie monster uh, but i couldn't remember a single thing about it and then i i did that terrible thing um of you know, when you're about sort of 15, 16, and you start to think, well, I don't want to be associated with any of that childhood rubbish anymore. Oh, and you got rid of it. I just chucked it out. Okay. Yeah. So, God, what, how, why? Embarrassing. Oh, this is so <laughs> cringeworthy. Oh, that's got to go in the bin. Nobody must ever find that. And now I just, oh, I, I would love to be able to see the Guardian of Goblin Grotto again. <laughs> maybe, maybe a copy will show up somewhere. 
in the well, world. Well, it'll, it'll be <laughs> underneath about 35 years of landfill, <laughs> as we speak. Is there anything we haven't covered from the from the um, from the website or from the articles that you think is important to oh gosh to work? Oh, I'm not sure anything I do is especially important, <laughs> but I'll take the compliments. Um, yeah, I mean, I, if people want to go, the, the website is called hauntedgeneration.co.uk. Um, so there are lots of completely exclusive. Let's 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 boldly use the word exclusive here. There are lots of exclusive features on there of interviews that I've done with people from um, that whole music scene um, and indeed with people that were doing original creepy scary stuff in the 70s and 80s so the most recent feature that i've put on there is an interview with an actor called mike mungarvan who as well as being a dalek in the 1979 doctor who story destiny of the daleks also played howard harvey in a photo story in the 1982 eagle comic called doom lord um it's about a terrifying alien who comes to earth and basically on a mission to to wipe out humanity for the good of the cosmos <laughs> and howard harvey intrepid local journalist howard harvey is the only man who can stop him um so yeah i managed to track down mike mungarvan who posed for all of the photos uh, for that photo story um and um he was brilliant so that's the latest thing um the latest and the latest exclusive feature uh, on the Haunted Generation website. But uh, yeah, all of my writing for Electronic Sound Magazine is on there. All of my writing for um, 14 Times is on there. There's Musty Books, where, I, like, as you mentioned, I dig out old childhood books from the 70s and 80s and, and read them with a, a, a bit more adult perspective. Uh, there's Felt Trips, which is what you contributed to, which is original <laughs> drawings from that era, you know, kids' drawings from the 70s and 80s that have been dutifully kept for years on end. Um, I've just started a feature called The Dark Room, um, where I'm looking at sort of family photos with a little bit of resonance behind them. Um, so I've been featuring just lovely pictures of, you know, school trips to those outward bound courses, yes. um, like village fates with spider monkeys crawling all over kids. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm just about to put one on, a uh, lovely chap called James, um, just uh, in, in, the, in the early 1980s, was so in love with his ZX81 computer that he took loads of photos of it set up in his bedroom. And I just, I love stuff like that, just these tiny snapshots into a, into a forgotten world. So uh, that's on there as well. And um, all kinds of other stuff that I've probably forgotten. Oh, there's a radio, there's a Haunted Generation radio show as well. That's on Mixcloud, but you can access it from the website, which is essentially me playing um, strange music, uh, mixtures of, old folk music and um, extracts from children's albums of the 1970s, old BBC Playaway and Play School albums and strange electronic music and all kinds of other oddness. So uh, that's it's uh, Mixcloud slash Haunted Generation, I think. But if you go to the website, it's it's all accessible from there. The website, of course, is hauntedgeneration.co. Dot UK. Is there anywhere else online you'd like people to find yourself or your work? 
Come and look for me on Twitter. I'm pretty, I'm pretty active on Twitter. As much as I'm ever active anywhere, um, I'm reasonably active on Twitter. So I'm, I'm Bob underscore Fisher uh, on Twitter with an inconvenient C in the middle of Fisher. Uh, <laughs> but you'll find me. And then, yeah, there's full Haunted Generation social media as well. It's it's Haunted Gen on on the Twitter. And there's Haunted Generation uh, Facebook as well. So it's, it's all out there. There's no escape, I'm afraid. <laughs> that's wonderful bob you're an absolute gent that was loads of fun thank you it's been brilliant thank you for asking all right folks that's it for the interview hopefully you enjoyed that one as much as i did i had a great time with that loads of fun huge thanks again to bob fisher for talking on the show and as i said i think listeners will enjoy a good nose around on the haunted generation website there's a whole lot of stuff there i think that ties in to our particular interests especially if you're a fan of this show now i did say off at the top that i would have some little bits at the end kind of connections corrections and reactions to previous episodes Uh, firstly regarding this episode the book i was trying to think of that was written by robert swindells about jovian or jupiter creatures living in rural england does exist it was written by robert swindells i did doubt myself there for a bit it's called Hydra, and it's from 1993, if anyone's interested in tracking down that. The album by The Night Monitor that we called The Welsh Triangle is in fact called Spacemen Mystery of the Terror Triangle. And it is, of course, uh, all about the, the so-called Welsh Triangle of UFO sightings in the 1970s, also well worth your time. Now, I want to do some reactions to the episode about the witchcraft murders with Jeb Card. We had a lot of reaction to that one and we covered so much material in the episode and it was obviously a real treat uh, talking to Jeb Card about this because he, kn- he knows so much about it and I'll just read out a few of the um, comments we got over mostly over on Instagram. I know people said nice things on Twitter as well but I honestly can't find them at the moment. So on, <laughs> on Instagram, we have um, Stephen B says, great episode. You and Dr. Card are some of my favorite podcasters. Glad to hear a collaboration. That's super nice. Um, Beckon Sawinson says, been following your show for a while, but this episode was an absolute belter in every discussion of the witch cult narrative, especially when Murray and Fraser et al. are involved. I keep waiting for someone to bring up the book, The White Goddess by Robert Graves. You know that one. It's where I first encountered most of these narratives that he presents them in a lovely poetic fashion that leaves the door open for the ideas to have meaning even after the facts have been sorted from fiction. Yeah, I do. I am aware of the White Goddess. I'm. I there's just so much to this story, and yeah, you're right. Margaret Murray and uh, Robert uh, James Fraser tend to hog all of the attention when when the kind of witch cult stuff comes up. There's a whole. There are a whole lot more. Um, people who've contributed to the to the myth over the years and that is a particularly nice one perhaps we will get a chance to do it justice um someday when we have even more time to talk about that particular that particular topic in fact i've contributed to an episode recently of the the workers cauldron show where i talked about another slightly lesser known character involved in the history of the witch cult hypothesis so uh, check them out I'm not sure when that episode is coming out, to be honest. Um, Verstix says, Yay, a while ago I listened to the podcast episode on this and it left some unexplained. I know neither you or Jeb are usually in the habit of that. So it got my hopes up. Um, that's nice. Uh, Sin and Bone says, I know what I'll be playing on my headphones tonight, which is nice. And we have some more here. Hushabye Brightwing says, 
Love the references to Night of the Demon and Bell, Book and Candle. Really enjoyed Jack Lemmon in that movie. So much in this episode to take in in one sitting. There, there's a lot of stuff in that episode, yeah. Even just a lot of things that are new to me. New uh, books and movies to check out. Uh, Stellar Blue Galaxy says, Just finished this episode. Wow, what a fun, rollicking conversation. I wrote down so many little bits and pieces I want to look up, read and watch. Same, same. And some of these are old. This is mostly stuff from six or eight weeks ago, but that's just the way uh, things have been. Now, lastly... Um, Jeb Card himself wanted to add something to this story because a few weeks after the episode dropped, he found an extra bit of information, so I just said I'd include it here. Um, and this was to do with, we were wondering on the episode whether Margaret Murray had ever uh, commented publicly on the Bella in the Witch Elm case, the Hagley Woods case. And at the time, he was under the impression that there was nothing known about this and has since come across some information. So this is from... Um, Birmingham Gazette, Saturday 2nd, September 1950. And the headline is Midland Black Magic Murders. And uh, Jeb says most of this is about the, the Walton case, the, 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 the standard witchcraft murder um, at Laura Quinton. But then at the end it mentions the Hagley Wood case. And none other than Margaret Murray is quoted about the woman in the witch elm saying, quote, I believe she was another victim of the devil worshippers. Like Walton, her body was found in an isolated place. I also believe that many of these murders with peculiar twists are the result of devil worshippers. And it goes on to say that the local superintendent, um, A.W. Spooner, is quoted saying that Murray actually helped him with the Walton case. And so that's just a little little addition to that story that uh, Jeb Carr came across uh, afterwards. So always happy to issue a, an addition or a correction to something that we've done in the past. Okay, so that's it for this episode, folks. Uh, oh, no, I have one more thing. There is a video on YouTube called Science, Popular Culture and Cryptozoology. It is from early October. So at the time I am writing this, it's pretty recent. And I think just from the title, you can guess that um, this is the sort of thing that I'm interested in and I suspect listeners will be interested in. But some of the folks involved uh, either have been on this show or have commented or supported the show or been involved in some way so as uh, some of the folks involved are Richard Fallon who was on our episode about um, dinosaurs in popular culture uh, Gregory Forth is on it Samantha Hearn Darren Nash is on it and it's chaired by Margot DeMello so some folks there you might recognize from uh, previous um, communications and emails and stuff that I've read out on the show people who either either listen or who have sent me nice things um, over the last few years so check that out it's called pop animals science popular culture and cryptozoology a discussion i'll put a link in the notes i will leave it there as always say hi over on twitter i'm at strange ireland say hi on instagram i am irish underscore cryptid underscore dude and buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic so until next time stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.